As you're being seated, if you will find your Bible or open your app to John chapter 7, and we'll also be looking at Mark chapter 3 today. Anybody remember the television show Leave it to Beaver? Anybody remember Leave it to Beaver? It goes back before some of you guys were born, but uh, you had the perfect family. June was a perfect family. No, June, wrong show. Uh, June always wore pearls, even whenever she was cooking dinner. She was always a perfect size eight. Ward always had a suit and tie on. He always seemed to have everything under control. He was always calm and kind of the perfect dad. And then you had Wally, who was the great big brother. And you had the Beeve, who he was a little bit mischievous, but you know, he was a good kid. And they just had a, a ideal family. And this was what a family is supposed to look like. So here's a question that I have for you. Does your family look anything like Leave it to Beaver? Does your family look anything like Leave it to Beaver? Just a guess, but I, I would be wager, I would be willing, I don't wager, I'm a pastor, but I would be willing to guess that in most of our lives, we have some level of family trouble. Some level where family is not clicking on all cylinders. Maybe you think your mother is half crazy. Maybe you think your dad is never there, your dad's always absent, he's uh, just never in tune with the family. Maybe you're a mother or father who's dealing with the fact that as a, their children will not listen, their children are rebellious, perhaps they're adult kids who are turning from the faith, going their own way. Perhaps you're dealing with in-laws, do I really have to say anything more? Uh, maybe you're dealing with sibling relationships and even as adult siblings trying to get along and figure out all the different things that have to be done, it seems like every family has a crazy Aunt Sally. You know, just one family member who's wheels off and crazy Aunt Sally's always there. Even church families have a crazy Aunt Sally, it seems like. And so you're kind of dealing with those dynamics. Someone once wrote that uh, they are not sure if families are forever is supposed to be a warm sentiment, or is it supposed to be a threat? Which one is it? Uh, question, though, for you. Does it comfort you to know that even Jesus had family troubles? That even Jesus had to work through the ins and outs and the swampy land of family life? Behind the nativity scene was a very stressful situation. You have the silent night, the holy night, the angels, the shepherds, you know, the beautiful scene, the halo over the manger. You have that situation, but behind all of that, you have Mary, who's nine months pregnant, and Joseph comes to her and says, we're going on a road trip, and here's your rental car. It's a donkey. You're going to ride a donkey halfway across the country, Mary. And then they get to Jerusalem, and Joseph hasn't even checked Travelocity. He didn't book a room. He didn't take any preventative strikes there. I mean, they got to Jerusalem. The only place they can find to stay is the stable. Now, ladies, those of you that have given birth, that's not your ideal birthing suite. You know, that's not what you're after. I would imagine that behind the scenes at the Nativity was a stressful family situation. Then later on, Mary and Joseph have other children. So Jesus has 
brothers, or earthly brothers. Could you imagine growing up with Jesus as your big brother? I mean, talk about living in somebody's shadow. I mean, this guy doesn't sin. He's the perfect child. You go to swim lessons. You've got your floaties on. You're trying to learn how to dog paddle, and you look over there, and he's walking on water. I mean, that's a hard big brother to have to try to live up to. So his brothers lived in his shadow. Then somewhere in the course of their family life, it appears that Joseph died. And so the children grew up uh, without their earthly father in the home. They have a family business. Uh, carpentry was more, almost like construction, uh, very similar to what you do, Roger. It's kind of a construction industry that went through a lot of different areas. And so the family business uh, was out in the country. Uh, it probably started getting in trouble when Joseph dies. Then Jesus is going around proclaiming that he's the Messiah. People, powerful people, are trying to kill him. Jesus' younger brothers begin thinking that perhaps he's losing his mind, maybe even drunk on fame. All of this creates a very stressful situation for Jesus' family, and we see this pouring out onto the pages of Scripture in John 7 and verse 1, where the Bible says, After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee, since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of tabernacles was near. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now notice verse 5 because this is important to get the context here. For not even his brothers believed in him. So the scene is the Feast of the Tabernacles. It's the holiday season. It's a happy time. Everybody is kind of going around whistling songs. The Feast of the Tabernacles, they would often go to Jerusalem. They would camp out. They would live in these booths. Uh, they would remember the wandering in the wilderness. It was a seven-day camp out. They would see old friends. They would re-engage with family. Uh, it ended with a great meal. It was a festive, exciting time there in Jewish culture. Jesus had been teaching and gathering crowds. You remember the feeding of the 5,000. After that, he goes to Galilee, and the crowd follows him, stalks him across the sea. And Jesus' teaching had gotten too sharp for people. You see, Jesus really began getting in their face and pressing them on this issue. Are you following me just because I feed you? Are you following me just for the miracles or are you following me because you realize I am the Son of God who has come down to bring life to those who are dead in their sins? He started calling for belief. He started calling for his crowd to believe and come to him and accept him as the Messiah, accept him as the Son of God. And when this happened, the Bible says that many of his followers deserted him. So his fame is beginning to wane. He's hanging out in Galilee. The crowds are moving on. And Jesus' brothers, the sons of Mary and Joseph, begin to suggest that he try Jerusalem. Now, you read those first four verses, and it sounds as though they're being very encouraging, and they're trying to help him uh, really fulfill his vision. But then you have verse 5, which gives you the tone. Because verse 5 says, For not even his brothers 
believed in him. So you've got to get the idea here. They're, they're telling him that they need to, he needs to go to Jerusalem and, and do these so-called miracles. They're saying in verse 4, for no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. Uh, they, they say, if you do these works, if you really are who you say you are, then, then go to Jerusalem and let everybody see it in a very public place. I, I think behind the unbelief of his brothers was the idea that Jesus would go down to Jerusalem and he would embarrass himself. And he would come back to Nazareth and everything would kind of go back to normal. I mean, this was brotherly interaction. Now, they didn't really understand the stakes. This was very serious. The Jewish leaders were now actively trying to kill Jesus. It appears that they thought he was simply wanting public recognition. Embarrass him. Go try your miracles in Jerusalem. Go out there and teach your lessons, and just as they abandon you in Galilee, they'll abandon you in Jerusalem, and then you'll come back home to the family business, and we can go on with life. Now, how did Jesus deal with his family problems. How did he deal with this? Well, let's look at verse 6. Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to the festival yet because my time has not yet fully come. And after he said these things, He stayed in Galilee. Well, three things quickly that I want you to notice about his reaction. Number one, he was not manipulated by their attempts to get him to do something that would be wrong for him. Over and over again, he says, my time has not yet arrived. In other words, this is not the will of God for me. Uh, This is not the course that I am supposed to walk. He refused to be manipulated by their attempts to get him to do the wrong thing. There will always be people in your life who try to manipulate you, sometimes even those who are close to you, friends and family, that will try to manipulate you to do something that is outside of the will of God. Jesus put the brakes on here. He was not going to be forced into a situation that was not the Father's will. Now notice also, he told the truth. And he told it in a rather brotherly way. To surmise what Jesus said to him, to his brothers, he basically said, the world is evil. And because of that, the world hates me because I stand for truth and I testify for those things which are right. But then he says to his brothers, basically, the world loves you because you fit right in. You're part of it. They embrace you for who you are, but they reject me. It kind of had a little bit of that brotherly interaction going on there. And thirdly, he also didn't argue. He says, okay, you guys, you guys go. The next verse says that later on, he actually went discreetly and privately, but he, he didn't force the issue into a big fight. He let them move on. He didn't let it become more volatile than it needed to be. He said, you guys go I'm just going to stay here. Now, I want you also to realize 
that these difficulties that Jesus had in dealing with his siblings and and his mother as well were not just a one-time thing. If you go over to Mark chapter 3 and verse 20, Jesus here in Mark chapter 3 is kind of at the height of his fame, and he goes home. A prophet is not is without honor in his own home, Jesus talked about. So he goes home, and a crowd is gathering, and it's so large that they don't even have room to eat. And the Bible says in verse 21 of Mark chapter 3, now picture this. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. Now, You may have some family issues, but has your family tried to tie you up and take you home lately? All right. This is a pretty, this is a pretty, the family is kind of spilling out onto the scene, right? Uh, And we're not, scholars are kind of divided on whether or not it was the family that thought he was out of his mind or whether or not it was the crowd that thought he was out of his mind. And because of this, the family were trying to save him from the crowd. They're not exactly sure, but they know that, that the family is basically trying to get Jesus to come with them and they're going to restrain him and take him back to Nazareth, save him from himself. Verse 31 says, then his mother, who's his mother? Mary, we're talking about Mary. Then Mary and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. So Jesus is in this crowd, and the crowd says to him, Look, your mother, your brothers, and your sister are outside asking for you. Now what were they going to do whenever he came outside? Take him. Take him back to Nazareth. This is family tension. And he replies to them in verse 33, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who are sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Are you getting the vibe here? Are you seeing that even in Jesus' relationship with his family, it was sometimes difficult He had to work through things. The same reality that Jesus went through, we often go through in our own family relationships. And so I want to talk to you in the time that we have left today about four things that we need to remember in dealing with family. The holiday season is upon us. Can't hardly believe it, but it is. We're going to be spending a lot of time with family. Let's talk about four things that we need to remember in dealing with family. Number one, families are to love one another. Families are to love one another. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Jesus said in John chapter 13, I give you a new commandment. What was Jesus's commandment? Love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. He says in verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus gives us a commandment. The commandment is that we are to love one another. Then he gives us an example. I'll show you what this looks like, as I have loved you. And then he gives us a result. People will know that you are my disciples. People will know that you are godly. People will know that your family honors me by your love for one another. Jesus said the greatest litmus test of discipleship is our love for one another. 
He didn't say, people will know that you're my disciples by the amount of verses that you can quote. People will know that you are my disciples by the amount of Christian books that you have read, by the radio station that you listen to, by what you have on your automobile. Jesus said, people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. I'm not against theology, life groups, all of these things, but let's keep in mind it ultimately comes down to are we living like Christ? Are we being Christ in our relationship with other people? Is Christ invading our life? That's ultimately what discipleship is all about. Throughout the New Testament, there are all these one another passages. The New Testament tells us to prefer one another, accept one another, greet one another, encourage one another, comfort one another, forgive one another, admonish one another, wait for one another, pray for one another, rejoice with one another, offer hospitality, be kind to, honor, confess sins to one another, be devoted to one another, carry one another's burdens. There's all these one another's in Scripture, and if you put all those one another's together, they ultimately describe what it looks like to love one another. As Christians, we're to love one another. As family, we're to love one another. You say, well, pastor, I'm, I'm on board with that. That's easy. Except, have you ever met these people? They're hard to love. Do you know my family? Do you know? Never mind, I won't go into life groups, but, <laughs> you know, they're hard to love. I have difficulty here. Well, the first step in really loving difficult people is to get back in touch with our own need of grace. You see, I, I have to remember that I too am a sinner, that I too am imperfect, that I am who I am because of the grace of God, not because of my loveliness. And whenever I begin to realize that I need the forgiveness and grace of God, it allows me to extend that to other people who might even be unlovable at times. Now, look at the person that is sitting next to you, okay? A lot of times it's family members. And just repeat after me. I'm sorry. Now, those two words right there are hard, but there's more. I'm sorry, but you're not perfect. <laughs> now, again, do not get mad at the person for repeating after the pastor, okay? You will never, hear me well on this, you will never be a loving family until you are willing to extend to those you love the same grace that has been extended to you. Until you're willing to extend to your mom, to your dad, to your children, to your siblings, grace and forgiveness, the same grace and forgiveness that God has extended to you, you'll never be a loving family. Instead of heaven on earth, it'll be hell on earth. Families are to love one another. Secondly, families have to work through stuff with one another. Jesus and his family had to work through this stuff. Hey, you look at the cross. Who was standing there at the cross when Jesus died? His mother. They had to work through this. She was there, and even as Jesus was dying on the cross, he wanted to make sure that she was cared for, and he asked John to care for her as she lived her life. 
Uh, James was one of these brothers of Jesus. Uh, James later became a believer. He became a pastor in Jerusalem and wrote the book of the Bible that bears his name, the book of James. He later came full circle and became a believer in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Family life can be swampy. Family life can put you through some fields of mud. But because we love one another, because God has put us together, we have to work through this stuff with one another. Let me give you five basic steps to working through conflict. Five basic steps to working through conflict. Number one, we've talked about a little bit already, but look at yourself and realize that none of us are perfect. Jesus said, before you take the speck of dust out of your neighbor's eye, look at yourself and realize you may have a log in your eye. Make sure that you recognize your own imperfection, your own need of grace and forgiveness. Number two, seek to solve conflict in a way that brings glory to the name of God. You got a problem that you're dealing with? How can we deal with this problem in such a way that God wins? As opposed to me winning or you winning and us getting in a tug of war, how can we solve this in a way in which God wins. Number three, talk to one another rather than about one another. Those that know me well as a pastor, sometimes people will come to me and they want to talk about somebody. And one of the things that I frequently say to people is, what did they say to you when you talked to them about this? I didn't talk about the Bible teaches us to go to our brother and try to make reconciliation to talk to people face-to-face and try to clear the air. The Bible teaches us that we're not supposed to let conflict fester and, and let it get out of hand, but we're to settle matters on the way, talk to each other rather than about each other. A lot of times it's easier to pick up the phone and say, did you hear about this? And I can't believe they did this. And What were they thinking? Rather than to actually talk to people. And come to one another, not with the idea of, I'm coming to you to shame you into submission. But I'm coming to you because I want the air to be clear. I want us to be brothers and sisters, and I want us to have a love that abounds. Fourthly, be concerned with what's right rather than who's right. What is the right thing to do? Just do what is right in the eyes of of God. So often a conflict breaks out or even a discussion breaks out about something, and here's how we begin our sentences. Well, this is what I think, in my opinion. And it's all about this is what I think, in my opinion, da 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 da. And we never really stop to ask the question here what's right? What does God have to say? Have we even looked at the Word of God? Have we prayed about it? Have we ever thought about the bigger question what is right? as opposed to what do you think and what do I think and and whose side are we going to take in this whole situation? Take God's side. Do the right thing. You know, you find yourself in a conflict situation. Sometimes you can't necessarily win the thing or solve everything, but you can pillow your head at night knowing that to the best of your ability, you've tried to do what's right. Sometimes it even gets sloppy, but you can pillow your head at night saying, you know, I tried my best to do what is right. And when we say things that we shouldn't have, we do things that we shouldn't have, it's okay to come to someone and say, I'm sorry. 
I went the wrong way there. Shouldn't have said that. I did wrong there. Fifth, know your limits. Now, this is key. Know your limits. Realize that you're not God. You can't control everything. God hasn't given you authority over everything. A lot of times we find ourselves in conflict because we're trying to mess with stuff that God hasn't given to us. It's not our area. It's not our realm of authority. Uh, You're not God. There's only so much that you can control, and at some point you have to trust God to be God. That's why he calls us to live a life of faith. And so you can't change everybody. You can't make people see things the way that they should see things or do exactly what they should be doing all the time. Sometimes you have to do your very best and realize there's limits. I'm not God. I I can't control it all. Now, a second part about having limits is that you're also not a doormat. Loving one another does not mean that you extend to everybody a ticket to abuse you. Okay? You can have boundaries. You can have limits. It's okay sometimes to say, no. It's okay to say, I can give this much, but I have to stop there. Uh, because of something that's happened in the past, let's say, I, I have to draw a boundary here, and, and I can't go further than that. Boundaries are not evil. Boundaries do not make you less Christian. We have to know our limits and know when it is time to just trust God in a matter. Thirdly, families are strongest when they have a common bond in Jesus Christ. Families are called to love each other. Families have to work through stuff with one another. Families are strongest when we have a common bond in Jesus Christ. Those of you that have children in the home, grandchildren that you're trying to influence, nephews and nieces that you're trying to influence, When those children leave your home, what are the most important things for them to have learned? When they go off to the military, off to college, when they get married, what are the most important things for you to have taught them? When they leave our church and go on to the next stage of life, what is the most important thing for us to have taught them? Well, we need to make sure that we teach them the value of money and things. Don't argue with you. That's important to teach. They can grow up, and then they can argue over the value of money and things. We need to make sure that they're educated, that they know how to read and write and add and subtract and have a basic understanding of history and science and those type of things. I take my kids to school. I'm cool with education. You know, on board with that, not a bad thing for them to be educated. We want to make sure that they have experiences, that they have memories, that we've shown them the country and that we have memories as a family together. I'm cool with memories but let's realize that memories are the walls, not the foundation. At the core, at the foundation, when children leave our church to go on to the next stages of life, whenever children leave our homes to go out into adulthood, we want them to be leaving with a sense of right and wrong. We want them to be leaving with a sense of God, His grace, His salvation, His forgiveness, an understanding of life, a worldview that is biblical. We want to have built within them something that lasts, something that is elusive in our culture, something called care character and beyond just character, a godly character. Am I wrong on that? Isn't that what you really want to see built in your children? That when they leave your home, they are equipped 
as people to live their lives in such a way that honors God? I mean, how sad it would be if, if my son leaves my house and he's lettered in baseball three times and he's really good at baseball, but he doesn't know Jesus. And he doesn't know right and wrong. How, what a travesty it would be if our children know music really well, but they don't know Christ. We've spent all of our energies teaching them how to be business people, but we've never really even taught them how to have basic character, how to be godly. You see, the most important things are taught in families where they have a common bond in Jesus Christ. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for baseball or dance or all those other kind of schoolwork. I mean, those are important things. I'm simply just trying to say, don't forget the foundation. Don't forget the foundation. Fourth, our church family is also a family. And our bond is Christ. Jesus looked at those sitting around him and said, those that know and do the will of God, they are my brothers, they are my sisters, they are my mother. They're my family. He taught us to see God as Father. Our church family is supposed to be family. And our bond is Jesus Christ. That's what bonds us together. We come from different communities. How many of you live in Murphy? How many of you live in Sachse? How many of you live in Wiley? How many live in Garland? How many live in Plano? How many live in Texas? You know, we, we live in different cities. We don't all live in the same city. Go to different schools. If I were to ask the students what school they go to, they don't all go to the same high school. They don't go to the same school. Uh, we have some, we're, we're, we're becoming more and more multi-ethnic as a church. Different cultures, different people coming from different parts of the world here. You know, there, there's a lot of diversity within our congregation. Our bond is certainly not football. Some of you are Aggie fans. Wow, week today. Y'all won yesterday, right? Some of you are Aggie fans. Some of you are Longhorn fans. You're drinking coffee today because uh, you stayed up late watching. Uh, some of you are, are Sooner fans. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but uh, uh, we have God in common, you know? We have, we have differences, but we have God in common. Oh, guns up, whatever. Uh, you know, and he, there's a couple Baylor Bears out there, you know. This is your year. Um, you know, so, you know, we have diversity, but we, but we have Christ in common. That's our bond is Jesus Christ. Last week, I celebrated five years as being your pastor. Yeah. I, I love being your pastor. I mean, I, I really enjoy being your pastor. There's nowhere else that I would rather be than right here at Murphy Road. And I think about my own family and how my kids are growing up in this church. My kids see some of you as heroes. I mean, they're growing up in this church. When we came here, Karis couldn't even walk. And now we've had two other children, and this is, this is a home for us. Uh, we're seeing kids baptized, and you know, kids that we dedicated five years ago are now getting close to that point where they might be being baptized soon. I mean, life is changing. We're, we're growing up together. Uh, earlier today, Kobe Weaver was baptized in the 830 service. Uh, you know, he's a retired gentleman. He's baptized, proclaiming his faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, and I, I love this church, and I'm reminded of Jesus's words that we are family. I got all my sisters and 
really, that wasn't really Jesus, but, uh, you know, I'm reminded of that song that we are family. We're supposed to be together. And I can't wait to see what God has in store for his family. Some really cool stuff happens here. Children are growing up in these hallways. We're having the opportunity to build a foundation, a spiritual foundation, in the young people of our community right here. As a family, sometimes we say goodbye to those who go to be with the Lord. This week we said goodbye to one of our longest tenured members, Gerald Morris, who passed away. He comes to the 830, used to come to the 830 service, uh, married 47 years, uh, was a police officer in our community, actually started the Saxe Police Force, was the chief of police at Saxe at one time. Went to be with the Lord. I, I ask that you pray for Peggy and, and the family that love him dearly. And, and part of being a family is that sometimes we say goodbye. We also rejoice in those moments of life. Those moments when a baby's born. I think of the Saldana baby being born a few months ago. We rejoice that they had a baby. And we rejoice whenever God blesses somebody in a, in a special way. And we cry with people when they go through the heartaches of life. And they find themselves going through those challenging moments. Sometimes we have to say goodbye when someone's journey moves them on. In the last two years, I believe we've had over 25 families that have just moved out of our area, and we've had to say goodbye as the journey has moved them on. And at the same time, we say hello to those whose journey leads them here. And that's important, too, because we have to be a friendly, welcoming church that welcomes people as they come into our community, into our church family. Week after week, we gather in this room to worship the God of the universe. Week after week, we sing praises to him, the songs that are sung up in this very room. Week after week, we open the word of God. We let it beat us up sometimes because we want to grow in godliness. We want to be more like Christ, and we celebrate what God is doing, and we anticipate what he's going to do. And week after week, we as a church family, we gather to love one another, to live life with each other, to talk to one another, to celebrate with one another, to encourage one another, and to remember that simple fact that God, in his amazing grace, has saved us from hopelessness, that we are not orphans, that even if family relationships have been broken physically, even if people have gone to be with the Lord, you are never alone. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm not leaving you as an orphan. We're family. And so I remind you this morning, church, we're family. We're in this together. So let's remember to love one another. Let's have grace abound. Sometimes we have to work through stuff together. Sometimes we have to work through change, even work through conflict along the way. But we work through it because we're family. And we're strong, not because of our opinions, not because of our intellect, not because of our talents. We're strong when our common bond is Jesus Christ. As long as Christ is the bond, as long as he is the strength, things will be okay because he's what, he's what unites us. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we bow our heads and we come to a time of commitment.
I realize that this is a sensitive subject because in some of your lives today, there's some strained family relationships. And I, I don't want to embarrass you in any way. I won't embarrass you in any way, but I do want to pray for you. You say, Lash, right now, my, my family could use prayer. Would you just lift your hand? I, I want to pray for you to say, Lash, my family could use prayer. Just raise your hand right where you are because I, I want to pray for you. My family could use some prayer right now. Maybe it's even in your relationship with your siblings or your mother or father, wherever it might be. My family could use some prayer. I want to pray for you. Father, we thank you for the gift of life and thank you for those that you have placed in our life that we call family. Lord, we thank you for our parents. Thank you for our children. Lord, for our brothers and sisters. We pray that we might love each other. Help us to work through things together. Lord, help us not to live our lives constantly in conflict with those that we love the most. Help us, Lord, to treat those that we love the most like we love them. Father, may our families be heaven on earth. And I pray for healing where relationships have been strained. I pray for wisdom where there have been boundaries that have been put in place. Lord, help us to discern that which brings the most honor to you and to go down that path. Help us, Lord, to know when we just simply have to trust you to be God and place our faith in you. Help us, Lord, to be people that live our lives following you in everything. May we pillow our heads at night knowing that to the best of our ability we have sought to bring honor to you. And Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this family. What they mean to me personally and what what you have done in bringing us all together. Some of us have been here for years. Some of us are brand new. But Lord, you brought us to this room not, not by accident. You brought us to this room because we have a common bond in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that we might be family. May we love one another. Work through stuff together. Seek to bring honor to your name. Lord, may our common bond be Jesus Christ. And may the children that are running these halls may they have a foundation that's grounded in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.